0: This is Kelly Gregg, and this is number 18 in the series of podcasts of Diet and Health. I am offering these podcasts as a condensed version of the book. My goal was to get you to buy the book, but I understand many of you may be too poor to buy this enormous volume, and hence I will allow you to listen to the condensed version for free. Of course, you could always do both. This is number 18, and it is titled The Ketogenic Diet for Beginners. This is the same title as my smaller book on the subject, and this will be a review of the smaller book. Of course, now I can skip all those chapters I had to do in instructing you about metabolism and nutrition and what food is, and just get to the last chapter of the book. I do hope I have not built this up too much. I do believe this is the most effective practical way to lose fat, although I'll admit it is not the only way. I doubt if anyone listening to this podcast will actually have to do the most effective way, which is therapeutic fasting. And that's what it is, fasting until you lose the fat. I may have to correct that in subsequent volumes, as now we accept that stomach bypass or stapling is an acceptable treatment for morbid obesity. It is expensive, has risk, and the obesity has a high rate of recurrence. It may be that when the government actually takes over health care, that they may find it much cheaper just to make the morbidly obese go on a therapeutic fast. This would be like putting you in a high-class jail cell and not giving you anything to eat. I don't know if this idea will make me a hero or one of the most despised authors, since I may have given him this idea. Participating in the common maintenance diet is my goal for most of you who are metabolically normal, and I will mention that often in the last part of these podcasts. A little more about the bypass surgery or stapling. If you do get this done and you lose weight, you should go on the common low-carbohydrate maintenance diet, and you should go on it for the rest of your life. It is highly likely that you have insulin resistance, and I don't know if we can cure that. As we will see later, unlike therapeutic fasting, bypass does not reset your metabolic set point, hence there is an increased failure rate. It's hard to judge what the failure rate is, as we have different criteria as to what is a success. Many judge it a success if you have regained less than 50% of the weight you lost after two years. Since these patients are morbidly obese, that may mean that we consider you a success if you've only regained 100 pounds. To me, that seems a little low of a bar. In addition, the longer time passes, the more people fail. Although this statistic is hard to come by, I would estimate that most of these people did not go on a low carbohydrate diet. We will see that Angus lost uh, 240 pounds and only regained 15 pounds back after six years. Even if we use a rather liberal criteria of maintaining 50% of the weight they lost, after six years, we're still only looking about a 20% success rate. And I'm not even counting all the complications from the surgical procedures, which is going to be in the 5% range. Now maybe you can see why the government would think it's going to be much cheaper for us just to put this person in jail than to spend $100,000 for a 20% success rate. The $100,000 figure is the total medical care having to be applied to these patients. I'm going to go over the low-carb diet again. Then I will progress to the ketogenic diet. And toward the end, we'll talk a little bit about fasting. This is almost a continuum, and these three diets have many elements in common. A low-carb diet is just not eating as many carbs. Throughout history, the diet has been fairly high in carbs. By now, you must know that our carbs have changed in the development of processed foods. Hence, now I don't believe we can go back to the historical high-carb diet the processing of our food has just led to too much insulin resistance. As we also know, that's the first step to obesity and type 2 diabetes. Therefore, even when I get to the common maintenance diet to those who are metabolically normal and do not have any insulin resistance, I am going to advise a slightly lower carbohydrate intake than what I believe was the historical norm. There is not a strict definition of a low-carb diet. Most agree it is somewhere between 50 and 150 grams of carbohydrates a day. Now remember, we do not count fiber, so you subtract the amount of fiber from the total carbs when you are keeping your daily tallies, and that is your total carb intake. The low-carb diet may or may not be a weight loss diet. Again, when I say weight loss, I mean fat loss. The diet is more designed to be an insulin-lowering diet. We know insulin resistance is bad news, and obesity is essentially caused by insulin resistance. Lower carbs equals lower insulin. This is the diet for anyone who has had pre-diabetes before, and by some miracle has managed to get their A1C down to normal, and apparently reverse their insulin resistance. It is then going to be the diet for the rest of their life, or until about a month before you die. If you have type 2 diabetes, I'm also going to advise you to be on the low-carb diet. Not to cure you, I'm not sure I can do that, but to help you manage your type 2 diabetes. Obesity is a mixed bag. Some of you will require a low-carb diet for the rest of your life, and others won't. Pre-diabetes is somewhat like alcoholism, in that you don't get cured. Go back to the diet you were on before you got pre-diabetes, and you will get it again. The purpose of my book is to prevent your developing pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and possibly obesity. I want you to do that by you and your family going on the common maintenance diet. Let's do a little math review. Say you are taking in 2,400 calories a day. A calorie is just a unit of energy. We could calculate how many calories are in a barrel of oil if we want, or really for anything that can burn. But for most of us, our association of calories comes with food. How much energy is contained in that candy bar is the number of calories. It's not exact because we don't squeeze every drop of energy out of that candy bar when we eat it, but it's close enough. I'm using 2400 calories as an example, and it may or may not be enough for you. It will depend on your size, the amount of exercise you do, also somewhat on your genetics, also your basal metabolic rate at the moment. When you were younger, your body automatically compensated for that. You ate when you were hungry, and you didn't eat when you were not hungry, and you kept your weight regulated within a pound or two. That means your body was able to match your caloric intake with your caloric output, regardless of what that specific number was. Some days you may have needed 2,400 calories, other days 1,200, And sometimes maybe 4,000 calories. As time has gone on, we have disrupted that ability for your body to regulate it, and the way we disrupted it has been through insulin resistance. Everyone has a somewhat varying metabolic rate. If you weigh 220 pounds and walk a mile, you use more calories than if you weighed 150 pounds. Overweight people get lots of exercise just in their daily activities of life. Their problem is not that they don't get enough exercise. Carbs are about four calories per gram. You are going to eat 200 carbs, then you get 800 calories a day through carbohydrate. This then is a third of your daily caloric intake if we were using that figure of 2,400 calories a day. The Mediterranean diet has become well known to most. This essentially divides your daily caloric intake into one-third calories from carbohydrates, one-third from fat, and one-third from protein. Now, I'm not saying this is the best maintenance diet. It really is not a bad maintenance diet and has several factors in common with the common maintenance diet, that I am advising. Protein also has about 4 calories per gram, so now you're also eating about 200 grams of protein a day. If we use genuine US American terms, that means 7 ounces of protein a day. Most of you know fat has 9 calories per gram. Therefore, to get our one third calories in fat, we need about 90 grams of fat. This is a simple mathematical example. When I get to the common maintenance diet, I'm going to change these ratios a little bit, but the principle is the same. Some individuals on a low-carb diet complain that it is not as exciting as their previous diet. And I agree, if you don't get to eat a donut with every meal, It is not quite as exciting. I have been around a lot of people on the low-carb diet and have been exposed to great meals that have been low-carb. You would not even know these were low-carb meals. Not only that, at last count, there were about 10,000 low-carb cookbooks. When we get to the maintenance diet, you will see I am not going to worry too much about fat. Fat can certainly add some excitement to your diet. Much of the responsibility for the common maintenance diet is going to be laid upon the food engineer. With the right food engineer, you would never tire of a low-carb diet. You get all the fiber you want for free. Hence, you can eat plenty of fruit and vegetables if you choose wisely. Fruit juice is a processed food and not choosing wisely. Now, when I said you would get 200 grams of protein on the Mediterranean-type diet, on the low-carb diet, you can get as much as you want within reason, and the same with fats. The low-carb diet is not a diet in which you count calories. You do count carbs. Now, you do have to use some common sense. If you eat a pound of bacon a day, you get about zero carbs, But I hope you realize this is not a wise thing to do. As time goes on, this gets us back to what we want. That is the body self-regulating your hunger and satiety so that you don't have to worry too much about what you're eating. It will vary depending upon the energy demand. It appears that as long as we keep the carbs in check, your body will eventually get back to a better balance and restore your metabolic set points. This may take a while, and when I say a while, I'm talking a year or longer. The low-carb diet is one you can be on for many years. Use your common sense. You may or may not lose weight, because remember we are not counting calories, but you will most likely keep your insulin under control. It turns out that in most people, eating fat and protein tends to decrease your appetite. We may be resetting your metabolic set point and therefore your body weight set point. When you were younger, your weight may not have varied much more than a pound a year, and you weren't paying any attention to what you were eating. If you have paid any attention in the previous chapters, you know that you can sabotage yourself. If you eat seven 30-gram bonbons throughout the day, you are technically on the diet, but you have seven insulin elevations every day. Now, you are not keeping your insulin under control. When we get to the maintenance diet, I will be advising the food engineer not to have numerous meals a day. In addition, everyone has to have that 12-hour fast. That means that it's only 12 hours during the day when we will be eating and will be exposing ourselves to insulin elevations. I would much prefer you eat one fancy donut containing about 100 grams of carbohydrates rather than eating multiple donut holes during the day. The food engineer will also be providing you with low-carbohydrate snacks. I will go into more detail later on this 12-hour fast between the last meal and the first meal of the day. No matter what, this has to be the basis of your maintenance diet. There are several reasons, but one of the most obvious is that it does limit the number of insulin exposures you have during the day. Nowadays, we are eating 8 to 10 times in a 24-hour period. And each time we eat, we get a squirt of insulin. Eating multiple small meals exposes us to a great deal more insulin, even if the total carbohydrate is the same. As I have told you several times, insulin resistance is dependent not only on the total amount of carbohydrate you're eating, but the rapidity of the insulin elevations if you ate four meals in a day, you would get four insulin elevations. Using the maintenance diet, and thus avoiding the processed food that really elevates your insulin rapidly, you would have less exposure total insulin-wise with those four meals than with the same amount of carbohydrates consumed over 10 meals. This is true even if you were following my advice on the food you were eating through the common maintenance diet. 12-hour fast, and you should be able to do this virtually every day. If you eat late, you just eat late the next morning. Try not to have something in your mouth all the time. Now, I know that's harder to do with everybody working at home, but still, you can avoid it. And when you're putting something in your mouth and it's a snack, you're going to have to go low-carb. That's not terrible. It just means that instead of eating a bunch of M&Ms, you eat a cheese stick. Some of you are still asking, how come I have to be on a lowered carbohydrate diet now when for thousands of years nobody else had to do this? And the reason is that for thousands of years, everyone didn't have insulin resistance. Something has screwed us up, and now we cannot go back to the traditional higher-carb diet. I will talk about this more later as to what has happened, but the fact remains that the modern diet, whether that be the typical modern Western diet, or even the low-carbohydrate diet, is different from the historical diet. And you know it's different because of the source of the carbohydrates and the processing of food. As an aside, I have also observed that although in history there may have been plenty of food, people did not eat as many calories as they do today. If you eat carbs, the liver will begin turning excess glucose into triglycerides. If there is not excess glucose, the triglycerides really won't go up very much. This also may be a factor in reducing obesity. As we talked about earlier, there is the factor of processed food. It is my intuition that a low-calorie diet may protect you somewhat from the increased carbohydrate intake, such that historically, during the winter, when there was not much food around except for what we had stored as grain, eating the high-carb diet during that time as a manner in which we could get caloric intake did not seem to induce insulin resistance. So, a low-caloric diet, even if it is mostly carbs, may not induce insulin resistance. Of course, in the modern Western world, we have the opportunity to eat really whatever we want every day of the year. If we were forced to use high-carb foods as our only source of calories, I really don't think that would result in insulin resistance, as long as it was a low caloric diet as well. Now, this is my intuition, and I'm not completely sure about that. If you think about it, if you don't have many calories, you certainly don't want to prevent those you have from entering into the cells. Hence, you don't want to promote insulin resistance. The low-carb diet is a diet in which you eat fewer carbs. The ketogenic diet is a diet in which you have ketones in your urine. There is one main ketone body, which is beta-hydroxybutyric acid, or BHB. As we now know, when we stopped eating, our glucose may slowly begin to drop. The liver provides glucose by metabolizing the glycogen stored there, but eventually our glucose level is going to fall. And by now, we know the liver will begin making glucose from protein. About the same time it starts making glucose from protein, the increased levels of fatty acids are also being metabolized in the liver, and one of the products of this metabolism is ketone bodies. The brain then uses these ketone bodies as a source of energy, as it really cannot use fatty acids. The fatty acids appear to be too large to easily cross the blood-brain barrier. Ketones are smaller and don't have this problem. I said you were on the ketogenic diet when you were spilling ketones in your urine. And some of you may ask, how do I know when I'm doing that? The answer is that either you go down to Walmart or maybe Amazon and get those ketone sticks. When urine is applied... They will tell you whether there are any ketones in the urine or not. Anything greater than negatives means you are spilling ketones. For the fine print, you actually have a very low level of ketones in the urine all the time. Remember, most metabolic processes never go all the way down to zero. We have arbitrarily drawn a line and said that 4.0 is the level that you have when you are in ketosis. This turns out to be the first level above zero on most ketone urine sticks. Probably 99% of the sticks that are purchased now are for people who want to see if they are in ketosis for the ketogenic diet. If you have paid any attention at all over the last dozen or so podcasts, you have already figured out what ketogenesis is and how to get there. Insulin and glucagon are the determinants of which direction the fatty acid process is being driven by now you also know that carbohydrate is the driver of insulin secretion so logically you need to decrease the number of carbs in your diet this sounds easy enough on the low carb diet you ate no more than about 125 grams of carbs a day occasionally you would eat more and sometimes less but you would try to go not much higher. If we were going to measure something to see if it was working, it would be the hemoglobin A1c if you started on this diet to help prevent type 2 diabetes. Maybe you started on the diet to lose weight. The low-carb diet will often provide some weight loss, especially if you are currently on a high-carb diet. It is quite possible you will eventually be able to lower your set point and your body will naturally lower your weight just by restoring the normal weight control mechanisms. And by that I mean your hunger. Recall that the normal weight control mechanism is that you eat when hungry and don't eat when not. We make it closer to this goal the longer you're on the low-carb diet, but few will probably be able to graduate to the common maintenance diet. The common maintenance diet, for most part, is for people who never had insulin resistance. The low-carb maintenance diet is for those who have. Neither one will be able to go back to the historical diet, which is a high-carb diet, because of the manner in which our carbohydrates are now being processed. I guess maybe if you were living in some type of weird retro community where everyone grew their own food, and disdained any modern food processing, that perhaps you could go back to the historical diet. But for the most part, the low-carb diet is the type of maintenance diet to be used by those who had a problem on their normal diet. If you were obese and lost weight on the ketogenic diet, you may now have to be on a low-carb diet. Now, not everyone, but most. If, say, you were pre-diabetic, or early type 2 diabetes, your diet will definitely have to be the low-carb diet. Even if you are firmly in the type 2 diabetic class, I advise the low-carb diet simply to help your management. Even if you choose not to be on the low-carb or common maintenance diet, I still advise you to be on a low-carb diet. This could possibly be some variation of the Mediterranean diet, with a lower than one-third of the diet being carbohydrates modification. Later in the podcast series, I will talk about the purpose of the book, which is the maintenance diet to keep you healthy. It is not a low-carb diet, but it is lower than the modern Western diet. I will explain why we have to do this now, even though for most of history that is not the case. I said I will explain it to you, but I actually have already explained it to you once, and I'll explain it to you again. The ketogenic diet is a weight loss diet, that is a fat loss diet. Although it is low carb, it is not a low carb diet. You cannot be on the ketogenic diet for years. It appears that in most of history, man did not get this problem of progressive weight gain as they got older, at least not as much as today. Insulin resistance also resets our metabolic and glucose set point so that we cannot just go back to eating when we were hungry and not eating when we are not. To get into ketogenesis, you will have to lower your carbohydrate intake down to about 25 to 50 grams. This is an estimate since people are different. Not only that, this level changes as time goes on. Lowering your carbs induces metabolic changes in your body, such that it may be easier for you to get into ketogenesis to start with. The number of carbs necessary to maintain ketogenesis may vary as time goes on. We don't care what the exact number is, as long as your stick turns positive. You don't really have to count the number of carbs. You just need to know you need a low level, and if the stick is not positive, you need to lower the level. Ketogenesis does not happen instantly. Even if you ate zero carbohydrates, it would take a few days, in the range of two to four days, for your stick to turn positive. You will eventually get there. If not, you are doing something terribly wrong. Everyone can put an app on their phone to find out how many carbs are in what they eat. Most food has it written right on the package. Take the total carbs and subtract the fiber you get the number of carbs that you have eaten. Keep going lower on that number until you get a positive stick. After a while, you will be able to figure out the carb intake without thinking too much about it. Let me make something clear. The point of the low-carb diet is not to get into ketogenesis, although if you did, it would be no big deal. Often people on the low-carb diet will go far lower than 125 grams. Speaking of 125 grams, some will have to go lower than this on the low-carb diet. Let's say you had a diagnosis of pre-diabetes, and you started the low-carb diet. You religiously kept it at 125 grams of carbohydrates. The whole purpose of this diet for you is to lower your hemoglobin A1c. If after four or five months you get retested and it has not dropped, then you're going to have to lower your carb intake. Maybe it's going to require 100 grams for your low-carb diet. Remember what I said a few minutes ago, in that your metabolism does change somewhat as long as you stay on the low-carb diet. It's certainly possible if that now you require 100-gram diet to get your hemoglobin A1c to go down, that eventually you may be able to raise that slightly and continue to have a lower a1c a common theme in all of my research is that the human being is incredibly complicated and that although i am giving you a model it is simply a model i do not have equations with exact numbers be that as it may the model does appear to work and i can say that if you are eating 125 carbs In your diet, and your A1C is not dropping, that you need to lower the number of carbs. I don't know if it's one carb or 10 carbs, but it doesn't matter. You just need to lower it. Once you get to prediabetes, we have to lower your A1C, otherwise, you're going to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. You've got the diagnosis by having an elevated A1C, and now we're going to have to get it back down to normal. And the way we're going to do that is the low-carb diet, and we're going to keep lowering it as far as necessary. If it appears that it never gets to normal, still stay on the low-carb diet, but now you may need some medication. It is possible you may be at the point that you are actually getting low on insulin, hence lowering your carbs is not going to fix your diabetes you probably got pre-diabetes because you had insulin resistance and elevated insulin. Lowering the number of carbohydrates lowered the necessity for having a lot of insulin around. But if something is going wrong with your insulin-producing cells, then you're falling into the type 1 diabetes category. The problem isn't too much insulin, but not enough insulin. Lowering your carbohydrates... Will lower your insulin requirement. It's just that now we may have to give you something so that you can get a relatively normal insulin level. In fact, sometimes we end up having to actually give people insulin. If the low-carb diet didn't work, it may just mean that we caught you on the way to low insulin levels. This is what we see with lada. You see someone, you put them on a low-carb diet? It doesn't work. And lo and behold, you discover that's because they don't have any insulin. Diabetes is elevated blood sugar. It can occur because you don't have any insulin or because you have insulin resistance and you have plenty of insulin. We still had to fix that elevated glucose level. Elevated glucose level is very harmful to you. Remember, I may not be a, a real physician and you may actually have to see a real physician. Not enough insulin means you have to see a real physician. You remember my normal disclaimer. Do not take anything I say as medical advice. If you have listened to all the podcasts, you know a lot more about nutrition than you did when you started and a lot more about diabetes. You also know more than most medical providers as to what to do about it. The next podcast will be titled, Ketogenic Diet Details. Nobody listening thus far can be considered a beginner anymore, yet we still haven't gotten to the point of solving quantum wave equations. It may seem like we're almost finished, but I'm only about a third of the way through the book. If you're tired of listening to my voice, then you must go ahead and buy the book. If you can't afford to buy the book, then you're just going to have to suffer a little longer.